don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the show. I am Guy Swan, and you have arrived at the Crypto Economy Podcast. And uh, you are lucky enough to get a wonderful read today. Uh, This is one from Milton Friedman. And uh, if anybody has been in economics and uh, like liberty economics in particular, you have likely heard of or know very well Milton Friedman. Uh, He was actually a huge part of going down the rabbit hole uh, for... uh, understanding liberty and like the idea of free markets for me uh very early on actually um that was shortly before i think i stumbled upon milton friedman before the whole ron paul thing happened actually but um he he actually is not longer in my studies i've learned more and more or disagreed with him more and more on the nature of money or the uh, or the idea that we need a federal reserve and that sort of thing. Like he actually supported that early on. It seems uh, more and more that very later on in his life he realized the huge problems um, with that system and kind of that it was in fact a failure. Even though he thought money should be managed as uh, a means of stabilizing the economy, in a sense. And honestly, for how. Uh, free market he was in the idea that like we needed choice and competition um, in the markets. I always found it a little bit ironic or contradictory that he thought that we needed central planning and money. Um, but again, it seemed like much later in his life, he was beginning to see the problem with that. Uh, and he actually, he really actually predicted Bitcoin. He thought that there was going to be some sort of e-cash uh, on the internet, it would eventually happen that allowed you to send money from A to B without having to ask a central authority that the value was actually going to be in the cash on the internet and that it might be best to, rather than have a political institution uh, managing the money, that, that it would be an algorithm, that it would make more sense for it to be automatic and like set in stone, essentially. Um, uh, and there's a, there's a video on YouTube, I think. I'll see if I can't find it. There was like an interview with him in which he seemed to take that approach that uh, something non-state controlled uh, might actually be a better alternative. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember just kind of having that impression after I watched the series or I watched the interview. Um, with that, though, there's actually a really great series of Milton Friedman's called Free, called Free to Choose. Um, and that was a huge, huge step for me in like, hearing those uh, debates and conversations and stuff because it's set up with like a panel of people who have very different views on all of this. And he's basically uh, Thomas Sowell uh, or Thomas Sowell is um, uh, a part of the panel or whatever. It's a really, really great series. Um, a fun just debate and thought experiment all the way down the the rabbit hole of uh, free markets versus centrally planned ones. But all that aside, um, today we are going to read a really fascinating piece. 
We have talked about this on the show before, but obviously we have not read Milton Friedman's uh, paper on this specifically. But it is titled The Island of Stone Money. It's by uh, Milton Friedman. It was published in 1991. It is a working paper in economics, um, and it was with, uh, uh, published with Stanford in Stanford at the Hoover Institution in 1991, uh, and they have tons of economics working papers. I've been going through since I stumbled upon this one. I've been hunting through to see if there's other like really fun topics that we can go, out, go into uh, from their works. So uh, I encourage you to check that out if you want to dig into some serious economic stuff. Um, And maybe we'll hit some more stuff on the show. But just so you know, we won't have a sponsor on this episode because uh, uh, the copyright is um, the licensing for this. I would have to basically reach out to the copyright holder. I spoke with um, someone at the uh, Hoover Institute, and they said as long as I'm not generating any revenue on this, from a, a commercial revenue, then uh, I can use this as fair use, uh, but uh, I have to come up with some sort of custom licensing agreement. I decided instead of trying to go through the trouble, like I just kind of wanted this available to you guys so that we could talk about this. Um, so I decided, well, we'll just scrap sponsors for the day and uh, we will jump right into the article and talk all about it. And it is titled again, The Island of Stone Money, all about Yap and the rye stones uh, that were used as money because this is just one of the most, one of the, just an absolute perfect allegory for what money really is and why Bitcoin is actually a brilliant money. Um, And uh, part of the limitations of the Yap rye stone money um, uh, show exactly both, both some of the limitations of Bitcoin and the amazing breakthroughs that Bitcoin has over alternatives just like this. So uh, this is going to, I think this is going to be a really fun discussion that we're going to do after. And this is actually not a super long paper. Um, so uh, it should be a shorter episode as long as I don't rant for 40 minutes about this, which is possible. Uh, so this is going to be a fun one. But without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in to The Island of Stone Money by Milton Friedman. Abstract. Large stones quarried and shaped on a distant island were used as money on the island of Yap. After Germany acquired the island at the turn of the century, its officials had difficulty inducing the residents to repair the footpaths until they resorted to the desperate expedient of taking possession of many of the stones by marking them with a cross in black paint to be removed when the paths were repaired. The apparently meaningless measure had real results. That was equally true of an eerily similar event that occurred in 1932 when the New York Federal Reserve Bank transferred gold to the Bank of France by earmarking the gold in its own vaults. The Island of Stone Money From 1899 to 1919, the Caroline Islands in Micronesia were a German colony. The most westerly of the group is the island of Yap, or Yap, which at the time had a population of five to six thousand. In 1903, an American anthropologist by the name of William Henry Furness III 
spent several months on the island and wrote a fascinating book about the habits and customs of its inhabitants. He was particularly impressed by the islanders' monetary system and accordingly gave his book the title I have given this chapter, The Island of Stone Money, 1910. Quote, As their island yields no metal, they have had recourse to stone, stone on which labor in fetching and fashioning has been expended, is as truly a representation of labor as the mined and minted coins of civilization. Their medium of exchange they call fey, and it consists of large, solid, thick stone wheels, ranging in diameter from a foot to twelve feet, having in the center a hole varying in size with the diameter of the stone, wherein a pole may be inserted sufficiently large and strong to bear the weight and facilitate transportation. These stone, quote, coins were made from limestone found on an island some 400 miles distant. They were originally quarried and shaped on that island and the product brought to Yap by some venturesome native navigators in canoes and on rafts. A noteworthy feature of this stone currency is that it is not necessary for its owner to reduce it to possession. After concluding a bargain which involves the price of a fay too large to be conveniently moved, its new owner is quite content to accept the bare acknowledgement of ownership and without so much as a mark to indicate the exchange, the coin remains undisturbed on the former owner's premises. My faithful old friend Fatumak assured me that there was in the village nearby a family whose wealth was unquestioned acknowledged by everyone, and yet no one, not even the family itself, had ever laid eye or hand on this wealth. It consisted of an enormous fay, whereof the size is known only by tradition, for the past two or three generations it had been, and at that very time it was lying at the bottom of the sea. Many years ago, an ancestor of this family, on an expedition after fay, secured this remarkably large and exceedingly valuable stone, which was placed on a raft to be towed homeward. A violent storm arose, and the party, to save their lives, were obliged to cut the raft adrift, and the stone sank out of sight. When they reached home, they all testified that the fay was of magnificent proportions and of extraordinary quality, and that it was lost through no fault of the owner. Thereupon it was universally conceded in their simple faith that the mere accident of its loss overboard was too trifling to mention, and that a few hundred feet of water offshore ought not to affect its marketable value, since it was all chipped out in proper form. The purchasing power of that stone remains, therefore, as valid as if it were leaning visibly against the side of the owner's house. There are no wheeled vehicles on Yap, and consequently no cart roads, but there have always been clearly defined paths communicating with the different settlements. When the German government assumed the ownership of the Carolan Islands, after the purchase of them from Spain in 1898, many of these paths or highways were in bad condition, and the chiefs of the several districts were told that they must have them repaired and put in good order. 
The roughly dressed blocks of coral were, however, quite good enough for the bare feet of the natives, and many were the repetitions of the command, which still remained unheeded. At last, it was decided to impose a fine for disobedience on the chiefs of the districts. In what shape was the fine to be levied? At last, by a happy thought, the fine was exacted by sending a man to every Falu and Paba throughout the disobedient districts, where he simply marked a certain number of the most valuable fay with a cross in black paint to show that the stones were claimed by the government. This instantly worked like a charm. The people, thus dolefully impoverished, turned to and repaired the highways to such good effect from one end of the island to the other that they are now like park drives. Then the government dispatched its agents and erased the crosses. Presto! The fine was paid. The happy Phylus resumed possession of their capital stock and rolled in wealth. End quote. Unless you are very unusual, your immediate reaction, like my own, will be, how silly, how can people be so illogical? However, before criticizing too severely the innocent people on Yap, it is worth contemplating an episode in the U.S. to which they might well have your reaction. In 1932 and 33, the Bank of France feared that the U.S. would not stick to the gold standard at the traditional price of $20.67 an ounce of gold. Accordingly, it asked the Federal Reserve Bank of New York to convert dollar assets that it had in the U.S. into gold. To avoid the necessity of shipping the gold across the ocean, it requested the Federal Reserve Bank simply to store the gold on the Bank of France's account. In response, officials of the Federal Reserve Bank went to their gold vault put in separate drawers the correct amount of gold ingots, and put a label or mark on those drawers, indicating that they were the property of the French. For all it matters, they could have done so by marking them, quote, with a cross in black paint, just as the Germans did to the stones. The result was headlines in the financial newspapers about the loss of gold, the threat to the American financial system, and the like. U.S. gold reserves were down. French gold reserves were up. The markets regarded the U.S. dollar as weaker, the French franc as stronger. The so-called, quote, drain of gold by France from the United States was one of the factors that ultimately led to the banking panic of 1933. Is there really a difference between the Federal Reserve Bank's believing that it was in a weaker monetary position because of some marks on drawers in its basement and the Yap Islanders' belief that they were poor because of some marks on their stone money, or between the Bank of France's belief that it was in a stronger monetary position because of some marks on the drawers in a basement more than 3,000 miles away, and the Yap Islanders' conviction that he was rich because of a stone under the water some 100 or so miles away. Or for that matter, how many of us have literal, personal, direct assurance of the existence of most of the items we regard as constituting our wealth? Entries in a bank account, property certified by pieces of paper called shares of stock, and so on and on. The Yap Islanders regarded stones quarried and shaped on a distant island and brought to their own as the concrete manifestation of wealth. For a century and more, 
the, quote, civilized world, regarded as a concrete manifestation of its wealth, metal dug from deep in the ground, refined at great labor, and transported great distances to be buried again in elaborate vaults deep in the ground. Is the one practice really more rational than the other? What both examples and numerous additional ones that could be listed illustrate is how important myth or unquestioned belief is in monetary matters. Our own money, the money we have grown up with, the system under which it is controlled, these appear real and rational to us. The money of other countries often seems to us like paper or worthless metal, even when the purchasing power of individual units is high. This was reprinted in Milton Friedman's book, uh, Money Mischief, pages 3 to 7. Um, so that is what this is an excerpt from. And uh, that is the conclusion of his chapter, The Island of Stone Money. Again, don't forget that this was made, was made available by the Hoover Institute, and I will link to the actual paper and uh, the huge list of other like economic working papers and other stuff published and released, like just made available um, on their uh, platform. So if you're an economics nerd like me, that is definitely another place to go scouring for some really fun stuff to read. And uh, I hope to be covering more things that they have published in the future. Um, I'm just kind of uh, right now in the searching stage for all the good stuff. But with that, let's talk about let's talk about what this means. The the YAP system demonstrates a number of different things about money that. And, and this this system, by the way, lasted for centuries. There's not a lot of details other than the excerpt from uh, The Island of Stone Money, the book from 1910 uh, that Milton goes into, because that's the largest, uh, larger section of this chapter he, he goes into. Um, but the, so this monetary system lasted for centuries, and there's even um, evidence of some of these stones that look similar or that clearly are some form of these uh, fey or rye stone, which, by the way, I have no idea how or when it started getting called rye stones, but Obviously, this work from 1910 refers to them as fey, F-E-I, however, however you would pronounce that. But um, it demonstrates that for this money to work for centuries, money does not have to have utility. Its value, again, going back to Caitlin Long's thing that we talked about from the Facebook coin, the, the Libra coin episode, is that money is about the ability to maintain an independent and honest ledger, one that cannot be cheated. These rye stones had no utility. There was no benefit to them. Like the best thing that you could call them is ornamental because, you know, they could be polished and um, uh, and conditioned. I mean, they're this limestone, so you could probably make it pretty. But it completely demonstrates that clearly there was no utility. You couldn't, they couldn't use these in electronics. They didn't, they didn't have roads. They didn't need them for wheels, and they would be awful wheels. You don't want a wheel that weighs, you know, a thousand pounds. And they were practically impossible to move. You know, some of them would require uh, 10, 20, 30 men just to lift this thing up and move it to a new destination. And that was actually done in some cases. Uh, when the stone was too large, obviously, they didn't bother. But if it was a smaller stone, 
that could be transported relatively easy. That was a that was a um, reasonable transaction cost to have to move that stone from one location to another. But the the money itself had no utility outside of its characteristics as a brilliant form of money. That it enabled an honest ledger that could not be cheated and uh, allowed people to have value that was scarce. And it also it demonstrates in that same way the virtual nature of money. The fact that it isn't really a thing. It just needs, it is just a ledger. And, but there needs to be some sort of hard-coded cost, some, as Zabo calls it, unforgeable costliness for the value to actually be captured. Milton calls it uh, mythical in nature, that the, the myth of money, that it's largely a system of belief, but it's not arbitrary belief. It's, it's belief that must be based in the real world. And my favorite, my favorite whole element of this um, in the whole island of stone money and all the concepts of rye stones and yap is the story of the stone at the bottom of the sea because it literally never existed, but it was allowed to be part of the ledger. And this family had had this for three generations, and um, it was simply the stone at the bottom of the sea. Nobody saw it. It was a completely... It was completely in the minds of all the people that there was this entry into the ledger that said one giant, beautiful limestone at the bottom of the sea in roughly this direction. And that's such a perfect allegory to what Bitcoin is, is that it has all of the cost. One Bitcoin is absolutely, without a doubt, has all of the characteristics of that limestone, of that of that single rye stone sitting at the bottom of the sea. You can't see it, you can't touch it, it has no other utility, but it has unbelievable proof of work. It is secured by essentially the public consensus around its uh, existence. And uh, that's, another, that's another thing about this rye stone system is that when you exchanged value, when, when the rye stones changed hands, even though some of the smaller ones were actually moved, most of them weren't. It was actually a rudimentary triple-entry accounting system. It was enforced by the public entry. Is it like if uh, you and I were making an exchange in Yap or, or Rye Stones that we would simply announce to the tribe, to our public, our little community, that I now, like let's say I'm trading for, you know, you've got 20 cattle and I want it and I've got a big Rye Stone. We just announced to the community that you now own that rye stone on my property and I now own the 20 cattle. And it's enforced by the public. So it demonstrates, um, it, is, it is a rudimentary triple entry system. It requires an incredibly homogenous community. Um, and that's one of its limitations, which we'll get to in just a second. But that is what it is. That's, what, that's how Bitcoin is enforced, except in a much more um scalable and real sense but that's essentially that's essentially the the idea is that we're publishing to the public for everyone in the world to confirm and validate that my keys lock a bitcoin that it belongs to me that's the triple entry system we got a lot of episodes on the the brilliance of the triple entry system and why it's an accounting breakthrough um uh, in fact, I will link to the uh, Bitcoin is an accounting revolution. Um, uh, that one's a really good one that we read recently. 
But uh, lastly, this also demonstrates that money must be scarce to work. This, this, uh, the rye stones could be used on this island specifically because the limestone was so far away. They couldn't mine it and qu- they couldn't quarry this on, on their island. So the proof of work to produce uh, new rye stones was massive. You had, to, you had to literally go 400 miles. You had to sail and bring like a raft and you had to move this giant stone. You needed tons of people to do this. Um, you had to quarry and shape this thing over there on this other island. Uh, so the proof of work here was extraordinary, and, but this made the money naturally an incredibly scarce resource because it didn't even exist on their island. They had to basically sail around the world to go get it and bring it back. Um, but because of this, there, was a, there were a lot of limitations of the money. Like, so those were the things that made it a brilliant money for their culture, for their community. But because ownership was secured essentially by public perception, um, by, by uh, public consensus over who, who the owner was, uh, actually, in- interestingly enough, is that that would actually make individual theft basically impossible. Like if, if the public knew that you owned, you know, the big uh, rye stone at the top of the hill and somebody came with a bunch of his buddies and picked it up and ran off with it, it wouldn't be theirs any, any, any more than it was still yours. Like the public would still be like, well, you own this one. So whoever shows up and tries to spend it, well, then obviously it's yours because you, you owned the one at the top of the hill. So that's one of the interesting things is that it was actually, you couldn't steal it in the sense because it was a public uh, ledger because it was publicly enforced ownership. Um, but the stones never really moved. Uh, it, was, it was very infrequent that a stone would actually move, particularly any big ones. They just stayed there. So uh, where the stone was, was irrelevant. But this also meant that the system could not socially scale. It was only possible within a very tight-knit and culturally uh, homogenous community. As soon as you start to bridge differing civilizations with this or differing communities, it completely falls apart because only possession can reliably enforce ownership across you know, possible enemies or, the, or, or you know, communities that were barely friendly that have like giant cultural or like linguistic barriers between them. So... Uh, that made it like really poor at socially scaling. It worked great for the island of Yap, but as soon as you bridge, you're trying to bridge across like other communities. Not only can you not really move the thing, but if they perceive some other civilization as as an enemy and they just trade with them, like in you know once a year or something, like what what reason do they have to enforce it if they don't? particularly like there's no there's no individual agreements there between you know uh civilization the the yap islands and someone they perceive as uh untrustworthy but also the value of the stones is highly subjective like one stone can be compared to another but there's no objective comparison like it's not like they weighed these things and said this one's exactly the weight of limestone versus this one they clearly talk about in anything that you read about this um, that some were very pretty limestones and some some were a little rougher and uh, obviously it was very much like jewelry like one piece of jewelry was considered very valuable so it was a great store value and one was very cheap and not very well 
conditioned or polished or anything like that. So the range of uh, what would be like uh, of the value of these things was very high and it was, and because of that pricing would be very inefficient. The bargained for good would, um, would just have a really inefficient pricing system because no two stones are the same. You can't be like, I'll trade you my stone for your stone. Like none of it was ubiquitous. The, um, uh, what's the term? Um, fungible. Yeah, fungible. That's, that's, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, the, the coins, quote unquote, were not fungible. And in the same sense, it also was not um, uh, divisible. You know, you, you, you can't be like, okay, you get, you know, this 15% of my stone. I mean, maybe there were cases where you could own half a stone or whatever, but as soon as you start breaking, you run into huge complications as soon as you start breaking these things down. I, don't, I haven't heard of any cases where two people like owned half a stone and they could trade it, but you could very easily see how that might come about. But clearly you can't divide these into 100 million units like something like Bitcoin. So, uh, and lastly, because it's socially enforced, it actually becomes susceptible to social attacks, very much like the German confiscation of these stones. Because they're recognized, because Germany was recognized as a political authority that could essentially have greater claim to these stones, presumably through their willingness to enforce their dictates with violence, that they were going to come here and beat the crap out of everybody if they tried to you know, take the stones back. Well, confiscation merely needed a collective fear among the community, this idea that they were the authority, and then all it took was them to simply paint you know, a, a cross on these stones in order to essentially confiscate it for them not doing uh, what the Germans wanted them to do. Um, so even though a theft would be incredibly difficult or simply not be possible with, you know, an individual thief in the night. The community, um, it could not protect against a political force that chose to confiscate the coins from the natives. But the, all of this applies so beautifully to Bitcoin and shows where Bitcoin succeeds when the, the rye stone, the yap, uh, stone system falls apart. First, proof of work. The proof of work issuance could not be a more perfect analogy. These rye stones would not have been valuable if they could just pick them up on the beach and they were super light and people could just stack them full in their yards. It becomes nothing. It's like a, uh, an analogy uh, I always like to use is, you know, wouldn't it be great if money grew on trees? And my thought was always, well, no, it would be terrible if money grew on trees because it wouldn't be money. Whatever, even if you had trees that grew exactly the piece of, like a, a, a piece of cotton that looked exactly like the dollar, we would still simply call them leaves and, you know, we would, we would rake them up and put them in bags and leave them for the trash because they would be so abundant as to be useless as money. So uh, the rye stones work because of the unbelievable proof of work involved in creating them, in issuing new coins into existence. And Bitcoin is, is, exactly, uh, is exactly that. It, it shows that there is no, there's no cheap way, there's no cheat in order to create these coins. And it's, actually, it's socially scalable because the measure of its value is not subjective to another Bitcoin. It's completely fungible. And 
infinitely divisible because there's nothing more ubiquitous and more fungible than simply an integer. Um, like that's the, again, like if you're talking about the uh, stone at the bottom of the sea, it's very easy to break that up into 100 million units because it's just a number. But when you're looking at like an actual stone, it becomes a much more complicated issue. And you're also talking about a ledger that has to be massive if you're breaking this up so that, you know, 600 people own, uh, have shared ownership of one stone. You have to keep a track of how much is where. And it's only because the, the ledger is very small and it can be kept. If you've got a tight-knit community, everybody can know in their heads, you know, if there's like 50 stones around, everybody can have a general idea of who owns what stone. As soon as you're breaking it up into millions of different pieces, the the whole system falls apart because it's like who owns – you're just basically trusting everyone at their word. And as soon as an adversary comes in and says, uh-uh, I've, I own two millions of the stone at the bottom of the sea and, you know, somebody else comes and claims, no, it's me. Like how do you, how do you settle that if uh, there's no decent public record of it? You immediately have to have some sort of trusted ledger to keep track of who owns what. So it's the scarce number of those. It's the incredibly small number and the fact that you're using all of these as complete holes, uh, like whole, um, whole units that you can actually keep up with. It. It's that uh, Dunbar's number type thing. Like you can only have, what is it, 150 uh, people before in a really close-knit community before um, networks start to break up and you, you have disagreements that can't easily be settled. You can't relate to people. So, um, and also another reason, uh, so the nature of Bitcoin just as integers, but with still such an unbelievable proof of work, makes it a much more um, uh, provably honest ledger. Um, like that scarcity is extremely strict and very measurable and very objective. You, all you can do is relate one integer to another. There's no, there's no confusion as to how much 0.1 Bitcoin is in relation to one Bitcoin. Obviously, the value of the network itself is subjective. All value is subjective. But objectively, you can easily compare one unit toward another because there, there are one is completely irrelevant to the other. Like the, they are ubiquitous. It's a number, um, and. Uh, the proof of work that, that defends it, that, that unforgeable costliness, is, un, is socially scalable across enemies, across any political jurisdiction, anything, because it's provable and universal. With the advent of uh, electronic technology, of electronic networks, and the internet, we've got, like, as that spreads, the, the unit of measuring, of understanding the that costliness of a bitcoin is is perfectly measurable like it, there's no subjectivity to it at all you can know exactly like you can put a dollar price tag on how much security essentially is uh, uh that any certain utxo or whatever has in the bitcoin system so in this in the case of like rise stones a more advanced economy like the Germans might be able to quarry and transport vastly amounts, vastly more uh, amounts of limestone than the Yap could. They have, you know, really advanced quarrying tools. They have much bigger ships. Like they could, they could easily devalue the money on the island had they chosen, because um, uh, 
because the um, there's nothing specifically limiting the amount of production of the limestone other than the fact that it's very difficult for the, for the yap to quarry and transport it. If you figure out how to quarry and transport it easily, it falls apart. So as soon as you're trying to bridge countries with this, you can't do it anymore because the proof of work can easily, the market's going to easily find the most efficient way to produce this. It's like the glass beads on the coast of Africa with uh uh, it was very difficult and took a lot of hand, um, like meticulous um, polishing and everything to make these glass beads. So they were incredibly valuable. But over like a 70-year period, as the English came to uh, Africa and um, started trading, uh, you know, goods and slaves with the other African colonies, um, they... Uh, uh, they they realized that oh my god we could just make these glass beads which they can mass produce you know back in uh, England or wherever and over like a fifty to seventy year period the the glass beads just died away essentially they were inflated out of existence it wasn't hyperinflation because there was still a work and transport that had to happen but it could not last across these civilizations it fell apart because one side of the equation essentially had you know, a hundredth or a thousandth of the cost in producing these things as the other, uh, as the other civilization. So, um, like the advancement in in technology and the the ability to efficiently produce this in the market makes the makes the money not, um, or destroys the value and utility of the money as a money. That's why gold. Um, was the only thing that could bridge across civilizations in the modern world is because it had a proof of work that couldn't be cheated. You couldn't, um, yes, you could quarry uh, more gold, but there was, it was incredibly difficult to find and it was very predictable in how much would actually be found and added to the supply. The stock-to-flow ratio was very low um, and, uh, or its inflation rate was very low. So therein lies the brilliance of the Bitcoin, of Bitcoin's unforgeable costliness in the proof of work. Is there is no civilization, it, it, it makes no difference who or how efficient the production of the proof of work is. The proof of work, the difficulty adjust to the size of the economy and the efficiency of the market that is producing that proof of work. The, the rate of issuance is not altered because the difficulty of issuance alters with the increase in market efficiency, with the increase in the technological advancement and the breadth of the number of economies and uh, uh, civilizations that are trying to produce these new coins into existence. It is both perfectly limited and, account, and it accounts for all of the things that would change Essentially, it's the, the cost, the costliness of creating them into existence. So it, it, even if, like, you know, technically we could mine, if we found some technology that allowed us to mine enormous amounts of gold off like a passing, uh, 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 what's, it, what's it called, meteorite or whatever, and uh, that if, if we found a way to, like, just double the supply of gold because we have some technology that just is incredibly efficient at this, and we can just go hop over there, pick up a crap ton of gold, and then fly right back. That's not possible with Bitcoin, because the amount that you can get out of the mine is directly related to how quickly you can mine. If you can mine quicker, 
you can get less out. Um, not, in, not on an individual scale, but on the entire network scale, on the supply in the entire world in this global network. Um, so it's just, uh, just a fascinating solution to that problem when you just think about it in the, in the terms of like, how could you fix the Rystone problem? Um, but then obviously Bitcoin is a global triple entry system that has an objective uh, determinant, determinant of ownership. Like it, it's the, the measure of the owner is who holds the cryptographic keys. And it is enforced through network consensus, through a form of public consensus, but it is the rules that are enforced. So you don't actually have to know anything about the owner. You don't have to know whose keys they are. You just agree with consensus, uh, with, with a network consensus, with the validation rules that it requires uh, a valid computing power and the keys to change the ownership. And you've both secured your own ownership and do not have to care who owns what elsewhere in the world. And because it's based on those keys, a political declaration of confiscation, you know, labeling some coin in some external ledger without having the private key. You know, if, if a government came in and said that, you know, like, let's say the U.S. comes in and says that, oh, the keys or, or the coins in this address uh, belong to us. It's next to impossible to find and enforce every last node on the network to alter the rules to please any single political authority. The network's distributed across the entire world. It's broken into, you know, hundreds of jurisdictions, possibly even thousands when you consider the, the differences between enforcement of like some city or a state or a, a region, you know, that sort of thing. So if the U.S. declares that they own some address, not only will none of the nodes in Japan, Australia or the U.K. or whatever, uh, you know, any country in the world likely not even know about it, they have no reason to care. The, the broken and separate jurisdictions, the cultural divides, the, the linguistic barriers, like all the huge barriers that make grindstones not work, make Bitcoin stronger, not weaker, because the, the few susceptibilities that you have in a socially unscalable system aren't there in Bitcoin because nobody has to care about the jurisdictions. No one jurisdiction has any say greater than any other. The Bitcoin itself, the network, doesn't even know jurisdictions exist. Like everything is ubiquitous. Every node is a node. One might have some delay in the amount of time it communicates, but that's irrelevant. Everybody syncs every 10 minutes. And if, the, if that jurisdiction or that government cannot cut off their physical network from the rest of the world, which arguably because of like blockstream satellites, because of Gotenna and the global mesh um, stuff happening, like uh, sending transactions and syncing over radio by satellite, like all of these things, it, it's already essentially impossible in my mind. It makes no sense that they would be able to do that. And because blocks are small, even if you're limited to an incredibly low bandwidth, like a Tor connection to get across something, something like the Great Firewall of China, or you're reliant on syncing from a satellite node, that uh, because you've got that 10-minute gap between blocks and because you've uh, really restricted the amount of data that can be put into a block, that country can remain in sync even if the country, even if the government does essentially in everything in their power 
to prevent that network from being connected to the outside world. The smaller and more streamlined and faster that network is, um, the smaller the data throughput, it can squeeze through every crack and jump every wall, et cetera, et cetera, then the stronger the system is against any political or social authority that attempts to um, put up a barrier to it. And that's like, so Bitcoin is the solution to all the limitations of the app monetary system with the equivalent uh, proof of work with even greater like scarcity and provable like objective ownership and fungibility and divisibility of those coins. So everywhere that the YAP monetary system begins to fall apart and makes it unable to scale to a global system or a multi-civilization monetary system, Bitcoin completely succeeds and even uses some of it to its advantage to make it stronger rather than weaker. Um, and that's just, it's just a, I've always loved this analogy because it's one of the most fascinating concepts to really get at the heart of what money is. You know, like, do we believe Peter Schiff that it has to have some specific utility? I have to be able to take my rye stone and, you know, uh, I don't know, use it as a wheel on my car or it doesn't have any value? No, obviously not. We have, we have a system of money that existed for centuries that had absolutely no utility, but it maintained a couple of the core uh, characteristics that make a good money, and because of that was used as such for hundreds of years. And it's such a perfect example, and I, I really have always loved this. I, like, I, like I said, I've talked about this a um, very, very long time ago um, on the show, uh, but I just wanted to hit it again, particularly for uh, we got a lot of new listeners in the last couple of months. So if you had not heard this discussion, uh, the island of stone money is one of the most fascinating allegories to what Bitcoin is. And I always consider it, when I first heard about it, I considered it the first virtual money, in a sense. Um, uh, a great example being the stone that was at the bottom of the sea. And I didn't think about it until this time. Uh, that it really was kind of a very uh, early rudimentary triple entry accounting system that as long as you essentially stayed within the Dunbar's number, that as long as you're within your local community, you could enforce, it was publicly enforced, like the ownership. Um, and that's why probably the chiefs or whatever of the district were very critical in maintaining who was the owner um, of certain coins, like in the fact that it was like, you know, publicly known. Um, uh, who the uh, uh, rightful owner of them was. But, yeah. With that, I think that's all I wanted to hit. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that piece. Again, that was by Milton Friedman, and it was uh, made available by the Hoover Institute, um, published in 1991. I will link to their working papers in economics, to their whole like database of stuff. If you want to dig into more stuff, there's uh, they have tons of stuff by Milton Friedman. Um, I mean, there's just, there's a ton of stuff to go through. Um, they're a huge resource that I've only found recently. Um, and uh, I'm kind of excited. I'm going to do some more digging because I know we'll be hitting economics in the future uh, on this topic and more. All right. With that, um, I should have my, what time is it? Three o'clock. Okay, so... I believe I will have my Q&A uh, from yesterday out. 
uh, sometime today. I've got an interview tonight, uh, which hopefully, if I'm lucky, I can get that edited and out tomorrow. I think you guys are going to be excited about our guest. We got a really fun one. Uh, and with that, don't forget to subscribe to the show uh, and the uh, follow me on social media. I am at the Crypto Economy. And obviously, this is the Crypto Economy Podcast. I am Guy Swan. And just so you know, I don't have, as I said, I don't have any sponsors uh, showing on this show. Um, and they don't, the sponsorship doesn't produce a lot. It is very nice to have. Um, but this is a community. Uh, this runs on d- donations from you guys. So if you would go to CryptoEconomy.life if you wanted to support this show, um, I have a Bitcoin QR code and a Lightning tip jar up there. Or you can actually do my tipping.me jar on um, uh, Twitter as well. You can just kind of uh, uh, post to or, or donate to the actual tweet where I release this episode if you want. But if you could do that, if you're getting value out of this show, um, it is very, very much appreciated because I want to keep this coming to you guys and keep doing this work. I love it. It fascinates me and hopefully the same for you guys. All right. I got another episode coming at you guys tomorrow, so stay tuned. And until then, take it easy, guys.